2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, my name's John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Alan Dean Foster, the poet laureate of the novelization. If anybody grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, even, they will have known his work through his many, many, many novelizations, including Star Wars, Alien, The Thing, the list goes on and on. He's also an accomplished writer of original science fiction and fantasy, and more recently, he has written his autobiography entitled The Directors should have shot you which is a fantastic inside look into the book trade and the peculiar art of transforming screenplays into works of literature which entrance people like the young John Bleasdale who uh, flicked through many a copy and in fact my love of films and my love of books and the way they interact a lot of that is down to Mr. Mr. Foster so it's a really good conversation I really hope you enjoy it if you want to if you well Look, if you do enjoy it, I mean, it would be rude not to spread the word and uh, let other people enjoy it as well. So if you could like and subscribe, if you could retweet or like on Facebook or do whatever you you can, that would be greatly appreciated by me and by Alentine Foster, I'm sure. You can also follow me on Twitter at drjonty D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation.
1: I was in Venice for an Aqua Alta episode, so I have some idea of what you're, uh, what you're dealing with. But it's not Catania, or Cantania, I forget which. That got 35 inches of rain in, uh, in 24 hours. Just an insane. That's that's kawaii mountain rain. That's crazy rain.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And all, all across the west coast, they keep having these in Liguria near Genoa. They have these huge sort of, they call them bomba di acqua, like a (laughs) water bomb.
1: I've forgotten most of my Italian. I think I told you my cousin, first cousin, is a been a lawyer in in Italy for forty five years, and his wife is or was, and she still is the assistant director of the American Academy of Arts in Rome, at a place in Rome in a farmhouse in Gubbio, and uh, his Italian is probably better than that of most Italians. I mean, he acts. In theater in Italian. So, uh, wow, that's impressive. So, I studied a little bit before I went over there and spent a month with them. And, uh, but you know, if you don't use it, there's not a lot of places in Arizona to speak Italian.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is, it's one of those languages that other than Italy, there's not a lot of places. I mean, maybe a little bit of Argentina, the old, yeah. the old restaurant.
1: <laughs> I had fun speaking it. I love speaking other languages. And, How many uh,
0: languages do you speak?
1: I I can manage Spanish and German if you give me two weeks to get caught up, but I speak a little bit of a lot of other languages. Mm. The problem is to really learn a language, I think, unless you really have a a facility for it, you need to live someplace for three, four, five months and speak the language, not just think, well, what's the word for this in English? And it slows you down. But Mm. I can do, whenever someplace, I try to learn a little bit of the language. So I can manage, you know, at this point, a tiny amount of Arabic and a tiny amount of Hindi and a tiny amount of Russian. But as far as being conversant or fluent, I need I need at least a month to get even to get started. I think most people do. But it's so much fun to be someplace like backcountry India and address people in Hindi, for example. And the only thing they can think of is that you must be a professor at a university in New Delhi or something like that. visiting professor people get such a huge kick out of it and i always tell people even if you're traveling in a group which is the way most people do travel that anybody can learn how to say hello goodbye and thank you in any language Mm. but people don't try i don't know if they're scared or they feel they'll get it wrong but from my experience uh, people really like you to do it for two reasons. First, because it shows appreciation for the local culture. And secondly, because you're usually so bad at it that they're immediately sympathetic to you.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Italy is very kind to people who who try to speak Italian. They're very, I think they kind of don't expect it. So so uh, everybody's trying to learn English. So they're flattered by the fact that you're, that
1: you're, you're making an effort. And Americans make less of an effort than anybody except the English, I think. At yeah, least that's a that's according to a survey the Economist did a few years ago. And uh, but I try. You, re, it's funny things will come back. You know, the hard, they're on the hard drive. It's just finding the right password to access them, <sighs> like milachi and pacha, which is very useful in a lot of places when people come up to you asking for money. And um, well, anyway, we're, we're probably way off track. What you no, no to-
0: it's, it's nice to it's it's nice to listen that I I have to say I was thinking about this interview before and I was
1: and I was really
0: thinking that my childhood, you know I, I definitely I'm you know I, I love literature, I love books and I love movies and my first books that I read and reread and reread were your novelizations. So I mean I, I and uh, you know one of them that the Star Wars one, I didn't even know that that was you until recently because I I was thinking, this George Lucas is amazing. He can write novels. He can direct films.
1: Well, George is amazing, but that was actually in the contract. Right. That was for two books, the novelization of the film and the sequel book, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which does have my name on it. Mm -hmm. But it was in the contract that I could not admit to... It's the only book I've ever done that doesn't have my name on it. It was in the contract that I could not admit to authorship of the book. And this went on for a number of years, requiring me to lie baldly to the faces of many people, including relatives and close friends, some of whom who picked up on my writing style, which I didn't, didn't even know I had a writing style, but apparently I did. And time went by, and then the first large book on George's work came out, called Skywalking the Life and Times of George Lucas by Dale Pollack, in which the book inadvertently mentions that I did the novelization at which point it seemed kind of silly to continue denying it. And my agents got a release from Lucasfilm saying, yeah, you can go ahead and say it. And of course, it's now in various versions of of books on the book. It it hasn't been a secret for decades, but right at the beginning for about three, four years, it was. Mm -hmm. Why
0: was that? Was it just, uh, you know, they just wanted it to be ghostwritten and, you know, just his name on it or was there, was there any particular reason?
1: Nobody ever gave me a reason, but uh, what I surmised was George had put his heart and soul and money and a big chunk of his life into this film, and it was his story, and he wanted his name on his story, which never caused me any, any problems whatsoever. Uh, I've had other people ask me to go strike books. Uh, I've just never done it, but it certainly didn't it certainly didn't bother me then. It doesn't bother me now. Everybody knows now anyway. Mm. no I nobody told me but I, I suspect that was the reason it was like you know this is a big chunk of my life here at least it was at that point and it's my baby and my universe and my story and I want my name on all of that and that's fine I perfectly understand that I would be the same way probably
0: and you were I mean you you start started out um because I've just I've finished your uh, great title by the way for your book the director should have shot you <laughs>
1: That's a, if you finish the book, then you know where the title comes from.
0: Yes, it's good because of your a certain knack you have for uh, answering questions, honestly.
1: Yeah, that's why I don't work much in Hollywood and, and politics.
0: <laughs> but I'd, I'd love you to sort of give us a little bit of your background. I mean, I, I already know it now that I've read the book, but for our listeners, of how you got into novelizations specifically.
1: Uh, I was supposed to be a lawyer but my senior year at UCLA, when I was finishing up a bachelor's degree in political science, I needed a certain number of credits to graduate. They could be in anything, I just needed credits. And I discovered the film department at UCLA, which is one of the three great film departments in the United States. And I found out I could get credits for watching movies. (laughs) What a great system this is. I can go in, I can take something like the history of American film, 1920 to 1930, watch Buster Keaton for three and a half hours, professor talks for 20 minutes, four units, same as four units of physics. So I started taking a lot of film history courses. And while I was doing that, they also had film and television writing courses. I'd always been a very facile writer. I was probably the only kid in my high school that looked forward to essay tests. So I thought, well, I'll take a writing course and see how that goes. And I did very well in it and was lucky enough to be noticed by an instructor named Larry Thor who came to me after the first week's assignment was turned in and said, "You know, you can write," which nobody had ever said to me before, really, not certainly like that. He said, "Here's the assignment for the rest of the semester. Go home and write. If you need any help, come in." Well, this was a wonderful system, so I spent I spent a lot of time at home at home and a lot of time watching movies. And it all worked out very well. I took some more writing classes, some with Larry, a number with other instructors, and decided, you know, maybe maybe this could turn into something. Uh, I'd been admitted to USC Law School, but I thought maybe I'll just try, I won't happen, but I'll try to get into the UCLA Graduate Film Writing Program. And much to my surprise, I did. So I went to my parents who expected me to go to law school and said, look, I'm going to I'm gonna go to UCLA Graduate Film School for a year and two semesters and get a Master of Fine Arts, if I can, in writing, in film writing. And they kind of looked at me askance, and said, but they were very supportive. And I told them, I said, if this doesn't work out uh, afterwards with an MFA and a BA from UCLA, I'd probably get in any law school in the country. Right. What happened was, while I was at UCLA for those five consecutive semesters, because an MFA is essentially a year and a half degree. Mm. I sold a couple of short stories. I thought, well, I'll try some pros and see what happens. And I thought to myself, this is a lot more fun than getting up early in the morning and putting on a suit and a tie and looking up precedents for the rest of my life. Let's see what happens, see what I can do for a year. Let's see what happens. I got a job in a small a firm called Headlines Inc in Studio City, California. Uh, writing public relations. That was my first real job after a little part-time jobs. Didn't pay much, but a single guy, I didn't mean much. I found a cheap apartment at the beach in Santa Monica when it was possible to do such a thing. Right. And then I got a part-time teaching job, teaching film history and writing at Los Angeles City College, a two-year school at night. uh, And my days were essentially free. So, I had saved a little money from the public relations job and from other sources. And I told myself, I'm going to take a year. You've got all day to write if you want. See what happens. If it doesn't work out. You go to law school. And I sold my first novel and I got a $1,500 advance. That was to Ballantine Books. And everything just worked out. Sometimes your life hinges on very small decisions. And I decided to take the try. If you don't try, you never know. And in my case, it worked out. And
0: your first novel was uh, was original science fiction, right?
1: That's right. It was an original novel called The Tar I'm Crang, mm. and uh, was published, as I said, by Ballantyne. Betty Ballantyne, who at that time was the head of the science fiction fantasy line there, immediately asked me for a sequel. I wrote a book called Blood Hype, which turned out to be not quite a sequel.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: then. Betty and, Betty and Ian Ballantyne, who essentially started the paperback, the mass market paperback publishing business in the United States, moved on to other projects. They wanted to do fantasy and Western and other art books, glossy art books. And a gal named Judy Lynn Del Rey, a very remarkable woman, took over editing the science fiction line at Ballantyne Books. Her husband, Lester Del Rey, a noted science fiction writer, took over editing the fantasy line both lines were combined was were named Delray books, which they are to this day. And uh, Judy Lynn bought a book of mine called Ice Rigger. This was my third original novel. I will answer your question, actually. (laughs) And that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game
0: without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods
1: Book sold extremely well, extremely right. well.
3: At the same time,
1: someone at Ballantine or Random House had bought the book rights to a really, really awful Italian film called Luana, which is essentially a female Tarzan film, except the main character—the main character is only on screen for about five minutes, and the rest of it is stereotypical white hunters tramping through the jungle, having various encounters and adventures. Judy Lynn knew I had a degree in film writing from UCLA. And she said, somebody else bought this. You think you can make a book out of it? And me being in my twenties and uh, burgeoning writer said, sure. Not knowing what I was getting into, you read about it in the director should have shot you. And I did. And they were apparently were happy with the result on the basis of that. Judy Lynn asked if I would be interested in novelizing the Saturday morning The screenplays for the Saturday morning uh, children's television version of Star Trek which consisted of I don't know two seasons Mm. and I said yes and I then said well you read all this in the book but for listeners these are 20 minute animated film scripts and I looked at these and I said there's no way I can get a whole novel out of a 20 minute script I need a two hour script or an hour and a half at the very least so Judy Lin just said, do whatever you want with them. And what I ended up doing was expanding each script into approximately novella length and adding little bridging couple of pages to bridge essentially chapter one with chapter two and chapter two with chapter three to make it read somewhat like a book instead of just a collection of novellas. And it went on from there. I was about halfway through novelizing those when Judy Lin called and said, would you be interested in making a book doing the novelization of this upcoming science fiction film called Star Wars, about which I knew nothing, but nobody knew anything about it, really. Yeah. I kind of was uncertain, and I said, well, who's involved? And she said, George Lucas, who I knew from THX 1138 and American Graffiti, of course. And that's how I got involved, as you read, with novelizing Star Wars
0: and you get thx1138 into into the novelization i remember as well there's no,
1: a, not. nothing to do with any book version or adaptation of thx oh no
0: no i mean sorry i mean there's a joke in the star wars novelization
1: where oh the, the two
0: there's two stormtroopers who talk to each other and one of them says thx1138 why aren't you responding to the yeah
1: i i like i, I can't help it and it's a bad habit any of you out there who are interested in doing this sort of work, turning books or TV shows into the film, don't do this, of not suppressing my sense of humor. There's a great line that's essentially the introduction to Moby Dick, which I'll have to paraphrase, but Melville says, there are certain queer times in every man's life when he takes his entire universe for some great cosmic joke, the, the meaning of which he knows not but uh, he is certain that he is the butt of it. That's essentially it, paraphrasing it. And I've kind of looked at the universe that way my whole life. So as a result, it's, it's I have to force myself sometimes to take things completely serious all the way. That's why there's a vague description. Well, not a vague description. There's essentially a description of Cthulhu in a temple in Splinter the Mind's Eye and why the line, why a duck is in Star Wars, which is a quote from a Marx Brothers film uh, fans are amazing. Readers are just astonishing in the things they pick up on, and the why a duck thing went on for years until somebody actually thought to ask me about it, and I explained it. Which
0: which Mark film is that from? Coconuts. Right. Okay. Okay.
1: That's the that's the one where uh, Groucho, as I think Rufus T. Firefly, is in Florida attempting to sell land back in the late twenties, early early thirties. When the Florida land boom first got started, and without going into detail on the on the uh, on the film, those would be interesting films to novelize. By the way, that'd be crazy, how crazy films to novelize. How you novelize a Marx Brothers film and actually make it work depends so much on the personality of the brothers. But uh, Groucho is trying to sell Chico some land, and they're looking at a map. And Chico says, "What's this?" And Groucho says, "That's a viaduct." And Chico said, <laughs> why a duck? And of course, Groucho. It's just, it goes on in typical Marx Brothers fashion. And the amount of laughs they can, they can extract from a single line, essentially, is just, just astounding. I once saw Animal Crackers I'm talking about film history, uh, film history classes at UCLA with an audience mm. of senior and graduate students, essentially. You never heard so much laughter in your life because this is way before the internet, it's actually before, before VHS tapes and nobody had seen the film on television hardly and people, people were falling in the aisles for a 1930 film. I think that, uh, it was a wonderful thing to see. That's the film in which, uh, Animal Crackers, in which Groucho does his signature song, Hooray for Captain Spaulding. And the great, the great lines, you know, last night I shot an elephant in my pajamas, how he got in my pajamas, I'll never know.
0: If we start quoting Marx Brothers, we'll we'll we'll, we'll never we'll never no, escape. No, no, I'm
1: sorry. I'm no, sorry it's okay.
0: We'll never escape the gravitational pull of the of just that
1: fun. I do that a lot, but uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, it's it's great. It's great. I think there's, uh, yeah, I mean, I sh- I've shown my classes sometimes, uh, especially things like Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And at the beginning, there's this sort of like groan of, oh, it's silent and it's black and white. And within two minutes, they're like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Why-, why is this hidden away from us? You know.
1: I remember watching Keaton's The General, mm. again, class, uh, supposedly sophisticated students of UCLA. Well, it's an astounding film, as a lot of Keaton's films are. I think that's his best film. People will argue with me, but yeah, when you see it, when you see a silent film, never mind on a big screen, but with corrected speed ratio and cleaned up the scratches and nicks and everything, uh, suddenly it becomes a real film, and you you learn how great some of those early films really were. It's yeah, now you can see it on TV. T- uh, Turner in the United States will show films like that a lot. It's not the same as seeing it in a theater with a big audience and an organ going, but it's good. And it's wonderful that we have that. There are also on YouTube, a number of channels where film buffs essentially have gone back and taken extremely old footage, uh, like Lumiere footage. Uh, you, you can look at scenes from the Paris Expo of 1900 in the proper ratio, where people actually walk around looking normal, and then people will go ahead. These same people go ahead and add color and sound effects. And there's, there's some remarkable stuff out there if you want to clean. If you want to look for it,
0: yeah, it's really cinema as a time machine, isn't it? That sort of uh, it is. ability to look back in window in the past. So when you start writing novelizations and your and you know your big major one is, is uh, to begin. I mean, I'm assuming that the Italian Jungle Book didn't, you know, did it, I, I don't imagine it sold a lot of copies or how, how, how did it perform?
1: I have no idea. All oh, right, okay. It was a long time ago and I c- couldn't even quote you a, a fragment of the royalty statement, but a funny thing, which I also mentioned in the book, of course, was uh, in those days, nobody was quite sure where to place credits on such a book. And if I recall correctly, the, the credits mentioned that it was a movie on the back of the book in small print. And somebody from Disney called Judy Lynn at Del Rey wanting to know if the movie rights to the book were available.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, Yeah. you had to correct them about that.
1: Yeah. Sorry, sorry, folks. It's already a movie. But Judy Lynn and I both got a tearful laugh out of it, if if that's a good description, because had the movie rights been available for some bizarre reason, my entire career probably would have been different.
0: And when you when you started with with uh, the novelization, what would your sort of method be? Would you, would, you know, would you have the script beside you and you would write, and, you know, sort of following it page by page? Or would you read the script and, and sort of work on it in a more sort of amorphous way? How, how would you approach it? Or was it different for every every project?
1: No, it was pretty much the same for every project. And except for the tech involved, it's the same now. They would send me the screenplay. I would prop the screenplay up on a stand beside my typewriter. People remember those. And I would read the screenplay and I would read a line of dialogue or a description of the scene. And then I would expand upon that uh, on the printed page and transform it into prose form. And the only thing that's really changed is now I can get an electronic copy of the screenplay, put it up on my computer on one side, have a manuscript on the other side. And it's easier on my eyes, if nothing else. I'm doing one like that right now. But I determined quite early on, the standard rule of thumb for motion pictures is that one page of screenplay equals one minute of screen time. Right. This obviously varies tremendously depending on how much action there is in the scene versus dialogue. But that's a good rule of thumb. So I knew if I got a a hundred page screenplay, I would have to get at least 300 pages of prose out of it, bearing in mind the font I use and, and in, uh, you know indentations, all those little tiny details. But I was able to rough it out that way. I knew based on how I was typing that I would get approximately 25,000 words out of every hundred pages, 2,500 words a page. So it was a simple matter after a couple of tries to work it out, I knew that if I had a hundred page screenplay, I would get a 300 page manuscript, which would equal 75,000 words of prose. And I would add a little bit more in the polish and I'd end up with an 80 to 85,000 word book, which is what the publishers wanted and still do.
0: But with those first few novels, as you say in your autobiography, those first few novelizations, sorry, you don't have much in terms of uh, to go on other than the screenplay, right? You've you've got, uh, you might get some photographs, but there's a particularly interesting chapter on Alien where you don't have a clue what the alien looks like.
1: Not a clue. I got that assignment and they wanted it really quickly, so I kind of set a a time challenge to myself to deliver it to them even faster than they wanted it. But that aside, uh, I had reached the stage with these projects where, in addition to the screenplay, I would ask for and receive, usually, uh, still photos from the sets or pre-production drawings, something to at least give me some idea of what the characters look like. So that Ripley, the description of Ripley in Alien, for example, would look like Sigourney Weaver. Hmm. Uh, I, that's very important, I think, in a, in a novelization for the reader. Uh, so I got all this material. I got a package from Fox, no internet still, of course, and went through it all. And there were some nice 8x10s in there and I think some contact sheets, if I remember correctly, and the screenplay, of course. And I'm going through all of this. And I went through it again because I, I wasn't finding what I was looking for, which was a picture of the alien in its three different forms in the film. Uh, four if you count the burster, and I finally called somebody at Fox and they said well Fox isn't releasing any pictures or any images of the alien in any form whatsoever nobody knew who H.R. Giger was in the United States so nobody thought to go look at his stuff somewhere in Switzerland in an art gallery and I said wait a minute you want me to write a book called Alien in which the alien is the principal figure but I not going to tell me what the alien looks like. And they said, no, we can't do that. Fox won't do that. And I was like, you're trusting me with the screenplay and advanced black and white photographs. Can't you trust? They didn't trust anybody. That was the big secret, of course, the big reveal. But I felt that they could have trusted me with it because I could have gone and mimeographed, copied the entire screenplay and sent it out to 50 different people if I was that sort of person. And they wouldn't do it. So if you read the book version of Alien, there is no description of the alien in any form uh, in the book, except the face hugger that I remember now that they did kind of send me a picture of. So, and it's inaccurate because it's uh, an early version of the face hugger. It has an eye, for example.
0: Oh, right. yes, Yeah.
1: There's no eye in, uh, because that came from uh, a Giger drawing, if I recall correctly. So that was a tough job.
0: Aliens seemed to be a tough job all the way through there seemed to be hiccups with each with each one you did like uh, I remember when you wrote Aliens you you were disappointed that they they decided to clean it up and sort of make it into like an airplane friendly version
1: well that was the bowdlerization of the book version of Aliens uh, was done post submission right and I didn't even know that they had done that until a fan wrote me and said why'd you take all the swear words out of out of the book version of aliens and i I didn't take any swear words out i was true to the screenplay Uh, i'm always as true to the screenplay as i could possibly be out of respect for the screenwriter so i queried somebody at warner brothers and got a lower level functioner if i recall who said well somebody thought that they would sell more copies to teenagers and uh preteens, if they took the swear words out. And as the writer, I was borderline apoplectic, even though it meant nothing to me financially or creatively. It's not my property. It's James Cameron's property. But this was bad. This was an insult to the screenplay. And it was also an insult to every teenager and preteen who read the book, as if they had never encountered these words before in their entire lives. So I felt badly for everybody, but I had nothing to do with that. That was done by somebody at Warner Brothers for a a misconceived financial reason and to the best of my knowledge it still hasn't been restored and there's no reason why it couldn't be fully restored it wouldn't change anything in the in the plot or the characters or anything else but these are space marines for crying out loud and they don't talk like sunday school teachers
0: so i felt bad
1: for the fans i felt bad for the readers
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would have been one of those teenagers reading that book over and over again, I think, <laughs> to remember reading that a lot. And I remember, I still have a, a very fond memory of reading the Alien novelization, partly because you quote Joseph Conrad right at the very beginning. I had and, to. Yeah, well, there's Nostromo and right. Right. and um, I remember, again, it's one of those little, you know, butterfly Flaps Its Wings in Mexico moment where if I hadn't read that Joseph Conrad quote, would I have been quite so uh, looking forward to reading something like Heart of Darkness when it came on the school curriculum? It's like, oh, no, I know this guy. This is the guy who wrote the thing about alien.
1: (laughs) But connections connections like that are wonderful. And that's a major reason why I do that sort of thing, because if I can throw one line in a book or one word or something that will stimulate hopefully a younger reader to pick up something related to it just out of curiosity, then th- that's a good reason to do the book right there. There's a very good film version of Lord Jim, by the way, if you ever get a chance to see it on television, on cable or something starring Peter O'Toole, no less.
0: Right, yeah, I've, I, I'm aware of that version, but I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I should, uh, I should pick that up.
1: It's, it's a good film. You know, You can argue how closely it follows the book. It's a Hollywood film, but I thought it was pretty good. And, uh, of course, O'Toole is marvellous. Um, so you try to make these connections, help people make these connections, particularly younger people mm. who might never have heard of Joseph Conrad until they picked up a copy of Aliens.
0: Well, that's definitely me. I, don't, I really honestly think that was the first time I'd, I'd ever uh, seen the name. And, uh, and I immediately thought, wow, what a cool quote. And, and I've got to read a bit more of this guy. So that was, that was fantastic. And, so, and I mean, you really, during those, that early 80s period, of, well, way, way into, the, into, into the 90s as well, we, that was, you were cornering the market in sort of novelizations of, of sort of really classic sci-fi, what would become classic sci-fi. You know, you did the novelization of John Carpenter's The Thing and Dark Star. And you and in your autobiography as well, you, you sort of met up with John Carpenter at, at um, a very early point in his career.
1: Yeah, John's a very good guy who I think has been very badly treated by the film business. And he'll be one of those people who has university courses in his films after he's dead. Yeah, John and I met the, um, I I was asked after I did Luana to do, in addition to Star Trek logs. Judy Lynn again, had bought the rights to uh, this film called Dark Star. I knew nothing about it. And she mentioned that it was the work of two guys who I knew nothing about, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon, who were film students at USC. And would I make this into a book again? And I of course said, sure. And I ended up with a 75 page screenplay, 75 or 80 pages if I remember correctly. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what have I gotten myself into? Where's the missing 30 or 40 pages? Well, then I found out this was essentially a USC graduate film project that uh, John and Dan O'Bannon had managed to get financing for to expand a little bit so that they could get a commercial release and then John could join the directors guild and Dan could join the writers guild right they'd have credit and apparently they had a difficult time selling it the student films don't get made into feature films very often thx1138 being an interesting example of one that did So I'm reading through this screenplay and it's basically about three guys on a spaceship talking about how bored they are. And you couple that with the short length of the actual screenplay and it's like, what can we do with this? And the only place to go with that was inside the characters' heads and expand, hugely expand on what they were thinking because they weren't doing anything, they were thinking. Anyway, I was invited to a a private screening of the film which was held upstairs in the offices of the guy who had provided the money to get professional credits and a, a little extra footage in the film, a fellow named Harris, I forget his first name. Uh, one of the great, one of these guys who bought films like the guy who bought the American distribution rights to Luana, for example, Harris's big big film was The Blob, the original right. the Blob with Steve, Steve McQueen, Jack Harris, excuse me, there we go, Jack H. Harris. And uh, here's a great trivia question for movie buffs, it won't be because I keep repeating it, but as we were walking up the very narrow stairs in Harris's offices in, um, in Hollywood to a bigger, bigger room where they had seats set out and they could show the film on a screen. Uh, there, were things, there were pictures mounted on the wall on the left side and I'm looking at these as I go up. And one of them is the uh, first page of sheet music or the cover sheet for the music for the Blob, which was written by none other than Burt Bacharach. Oh, wow. Yes raindrops keep falling on my head and (laughs) lots of other songs for dion warwick and i thought well and i've never forgotten that i thought that'd be a killer piece and it was of course inscribed no idea what would would happen to it but maybe that'll show up at a film memorabilia auction one of these days anyway john was there and we talked for a little while but he was talking mostly to other people i'm sure he was making contacts which is what you do with these things and we watched the film and afterwards, I don't know if John asked me or if I asked him, said, you wanna go get something to drink? And I don't drink alcohol, I never have. And John didn't at the time anyway. So we went to a restaurant called Hamburger Hamlet, which at that time was a very popular chain, coffee shop type place in Los Angeles. There was one across the street from Gramman's Chinese Theater. So we both knew exactly where it was. And we sat there and we both had chocolate milkshakes. and. John talked about how he wanted to be a director, and I talked about how I wanted to be a writer. And of course, many years later, I ended up doing the book version of the thing, which John directed. And uh, so,
0: did you did you hear from him after that year? You know, uh, during those years.
1: No, he was doing his thing. He was in movies, and I was in novels. Uh, we did meet at least one time, I think, at a uh, San Diego Comic Con, and it was just like. Uh, you there's an old line from my favorite science fiction writer, Eric Frank Russell, says, when two, two sorcerers meet in the street, they invariably smile at one another. And it's another way of saying that if you are sympathetic with somebody uh and 10 years go by and you meet them, you just kind of pick up the conversation where you left off 10 years previous. I'm sure you know people like that. Everybody probably does.
0: I totally agree with you as well about John Carpenter in terms of his uh, his filmography. You know, he's got so many uh classics from you know the thing halloween escape from new york they live you know and there he's you know he's really working in genre but he's working in genre with with there's real uh, this really intelligent stuff happening in there
1: yeah i, I don't know i've never talked to joan about it but i know I, I can't imagine that he wasn't hurt and affected by a lot of the negative critical uh reviews that he's gotten over the years the Thing is a good example, as people point out. The Thing came out just about the same time as ET, and you know, here's this cuddly, lovable alien on one side, and here's this ravening, earth-threatening horror on the other side, with these astounding practical effects by Rob Bottin, uh, and it's claustrophobic and people die in very unpleasant fashion, but it's a great film, based in much much truer to the. Uh, John W Campbell the original novel who goes there then the 1951 version that's supposedly directed by a guy named Christian Nyby, but probably largely directed by Howard Hawks and uh, John just doesn't get doesn't get credit the thing his version has its own sub, sub genre of fandom who's right. simply focused on that on that film and related materials but John will get his due, like a lot of us afterward did.
0: And also, I mean, it connects. The thing very much connects with some another sort of passion of yours. Uh, the, another uh, writer that you, you you seem to be interested in, H. P. Lovecraft, because you you bring up H-, H. P. Lovecraft quite a lot, and. You um uh, you've already referenced how you described a (laughs) Cthulhu-like moment in one of the novelizations. Did you have you ever fancied sort of uh, have you have you ever written a sort of a Cthulhu-esque Lovecraftian piece?
1: I've written several short stories. Right. My very first. Sale was a Lovecraftian pastiche to uh, August Derleth, who of course founded. Oh, of
0: course, University. yes, yes, August does, Notes yeah.
1: Turning a green box, which is set in the library at UCLA because I hadn't traveled much at that point, then you, you, know, you write what you know, so I knew the UCLA, the UCLA library. Uh, it was not my first published story because the magazine that it was published in, the little magazine that Derleth put out, he only put it out twice a year. So my first published story was actually a story called With Friends Like These, which appeared in Analog, which came out monthly. But Derelith made the first purchase. Uh, I, I very soon thereafter did a novelette, also set in Southern California, called The Horror on the Beach, which found a very odd publication route, but which has since been reprinted in one of the anthologies of my short fiction. Many years later, I made a trip to the Ukraine, I was actually in London for a concert. The only time I've ever flown anywhere for a concert was for a performance of Harold O'Brien's Gothic Symphony, an extraordinary piece of music. And at the time, I was engaged in competitive powerlifting, senior powerlifting. Hmm. And there was the first meet being held by this organization, Raw Powerlifting, in the Ukraine in Odessa was the weekend following the concert. So I thought, well, this is a really good opportunity to visit the Ukraine and do something while I'm there. So I went and walked around, enjoyed Kiev, and went to Odessa and participated in the contest, got Got interviewed on Ukrainian television, of all things, <laughs> and then went back to Kiev, which most people pronounce Kiev, and had some time. And I thought, let's see if I can get to Chernobyl. And this was before the new containment structure had been put in place. It was under construction, but 2011 had not been put in place. And the only people they were letting visit Chernobyl were educators and researchers. Well, I instantly became an educator. (laughs) Nobody asked to see my teaching credential from Los Angeles City College. And a bunch of us from all over the world got put on a bus, and we went to Chernobyl and had a little tour of Chernobyl. Which was fascinating, of course, and later that became the inspiration. <coughs> excuse me, for a short story called "The Door Beneath," which is a Lovecraftian story set at Chernobyl. An obvious people say, "Where do your ideas come from?" That blending seemed to me an obvious one. I don't tell anybody any. Not going to excuse me. Not going to discuss the story, but it's a Lovecraftian story set at Chernobyl. I also was asked by a French company, small French gaming company to write the story that would become the basis for a Lovecraftian game. This became a game called the Howling Words with cards and and Much else uh, was based on a novella that I wrote and hopefully someday that novella in its original form uh, with all, out all of the changes and alterations and switcharounds you have to do for a game, uh, multiple player choices to simplify, we right. will get its own publication. Uh, I'd like to see it published separately. I think there are enough fans of horror and lovecraft where they would enjoy that uh, rather than in a collection of stories because a long novella, and I actually did expand it a little bit, it's now actually a short novel and not a novella. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't belong in a short story collection because there's very little room for anything else. So we'll see if some, my agency has that. We'll see if somebody picks that up. I think it reads very well. I think it'd make a nice movie. It was designed as a game, but I think the protagonists are interesting and uh, the locations are interesting. I think it would make a nice film. Um, we'll see.
0: Lovecraft seems to be coming back as well. I mean, I think from the, you know, his influence has always been there with things like the thing, you know, the the the, the you know, the the idea of something hidden under the ice for for hundreds of years and but, uh, but yeah, it seemed, he seems to be on the once more on, in, in the ascendant.
1: Well, again, it happens after you die. The first half of John, John Carpenter's film, The Fog, I think is a, as pure a piece of Lovecraftian horror as anything that's ever been put on film. It goes off in a bit of a different direction later, but boy, the first half of that film really sucks you in. Lovecraft's in the Library of America. He's now considered uh, an important writer. We get things like Lovecraft Country, which is a take off on his personality. I never met him. Uh, he was raised in unfortunate circumstances, which undoubtedly contributed to him becoming the kind of writer he did. He was raised by two maiden aunts and he wore children's clothing it's until a, I forget what age. Uh, it was not a normal upbringing. Right. He had a normal marriage apparently, it just didn't survive after a couple of years. But uh, he was apparently, according to people who talked to him and met him, more normal than you would think, Mm. somebody being a Lovecraft. But he developed this unique approach to horror in the teens and 20s and early 30s. He's considered by many people to be the great American writer of horror fiction between Poe and Stephen King. He's that kind of bridge character. He had unfortunate viewpoints on things like race and religion uh, largely, I suspect, because of the way he was raised and, and the context in which he was raised. You can't excuse those, certainly, uh, but you can explain them. Um, he, for example, he probably, he expressed, not probably, he expressed anti-Semitic views of uh, Jews in his writing, but he married a Jewish woman. Right. I mean, it's hard to rationalize some of these things. So you kind of have to do with Lovecraft like a lot of people do with the composer Richard Wagner, who expressed, espoused similar views in the 19th century. You can put the music off to one side and enjoy the music and not enjoy the person. And Wagner was much worse in some of his views than, than Lovecraft. It's interesting to contemplate what, have hap- what would have happened to Lovecraft personally had he been able to travel more. He was very insular. He spent a, a couple of years in New York and made one trip to, uh, to Quebec, in Canada. But most of his entire life was spent in a very small part of Providence, Rhode Island. Although he corresponded widely. I had a postcard from him that he wrote to Robert E. Howard, right. the creator of Conan, when he was in Quebec and he sent this postcard to Howard. I donated it, it's in the, Howard's muse- the Howard Museum in Cross Blades, Texas, because that's where that kind of thing belongs. And the writing is very small, very fine hand, which drove his editors nuts because he didn't type his manuscripts, to Howard. And it's pure Lovecraft. He's talking about the crenellated battlements and the dark streets. And it's just, it's a wonderful little thing. It's a shame it was only a postcard. Robert Block, who wrote Psycho and a lot of great, you know, mostly fantasy and horror stories, but some science fiction, and I were co-guests of honor at a science fiction convention in Tucson in Arizona. And we had a free afternoon one time and Bob wanted to know what to do. Very gracious gentleman, And I said, there's a place here called the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, which is actually a zoo, mostly outdoors, that focuses on plants and animals of that part of the United States. I said, this is a great place. It's close. It's not that big. Why don't we go do that? And he thought that was a great idea. So we went and while we are wandering around, I'm talking to him and yeah I'm kind of a smart ass at that age my wife would say that never changed and we were talking lovecraft i mentioned lovecraft and i mentioned cthulhu but i didn't say cthulhu i forget exactly how i pronounced it and he corrected me and he said no it's pronounced cthulhu and i said how do you know he said i asked lovecraft so that kind of put the guy that Finalize that pronunciation for. But I just I remember this. I tell this story to people to show what you can be as a connection. Yeah. You know, I was connecting to Robert Block, who was connecting to HP Lovecraft. And somebody will hear me and hear this story, and they'll connect that to something else in the future. And that's why when I started doing the science fiction conventions, I tried to go to, I tried to meet as many of the older writers as possible. So I would look up people like Edmund Hamilton and Lee Brackett, and right. Daniel Galloway, and Clifford Simak, and Donald Wandry who was a co-founder of Arkham House with August Derleth, uh, because I knew these people wouldn't be around. And I've I've always been been grateful that I had that opportunity to meet people like that, and be on be kind of a tr- uh, transitionary person. One of the first conventions I ever went to, wasn't a science fiction convention, it was a writer, uh, a teacher's convention in San Francisco, which Del Rey sent me to. And I ended up on a panel with Robert Block, Fritz Leiber, a fellow named E. Hoffman Price, who may be unfamiliar to some of your readers, and de Camp. And you're talking probably about 400 years of collective writing experience, and what the hell I was doing on that panel, I never figured out. I wanted to be in the audience listening to the other guys asking questions. E. Hoffman Price was a remarkable writer who wrote dozens and dozens of stories for the Popes back in the 20s and 30s, uh, for Weird Tales, notably. And he was quite a remarkable person. He didn't achieve the fame of some people like Sprague de Camp and Lovecraft, but he lied about his age uh, and enlisted in the uh, army at age 16. And was sent to the Philippines to fight the Hux, the Philippine Filipino rebels who were fighting against the United States, which did not give the Philippines its independence right away after we took it from Spain. After which Edgar, I think his first name was, left the army there and spent years uh, drifting around Southeast Asia in the South China Sea, at a time when nobody did that sort of thing, that kind of real Terry and the Pirates adventure came back to the United States, got a room above a warehouse in New Orleans, and started churning out stories. I know that his son has his autobiography. To my knowledge, it's never been published. But that's a book I would like to read. People say, what would you like to, what do you like to read? I'd love to read that. His stories of going around the South China Sea in the 20s and 30s must be remarkable stuff. And of course, that formed the background for a lot of the stories.
0: Yeah, and we're back to Conrad as well, that's sort of a similar part of the world.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and so you're um, d- uh, continuing with, the, with your novelizations. Your your you gives you an opportunity to move into different genres as well. You do uh, something which is like fantasy in terms and Greek myth with Clash of the Titans, which was again was one of my f- uh, favorite um, one of my favorites when I was a, a, a young youngster. And Krull, which I have a lot of affection for.
1: Well, it, the biggest problem with Krull, which was a big budget film with you know good people in it was that the and this is a common problem among people who don't read the genre that they're going to turn into film uh the producers couldn't decide whether they wanted to make a science fiction film or a fantasy film think you can't really combine the two it's very rare that you can do that in any meaningful way uh there, there was a series of books back in the 40s actually stories by L. Sprague de Camp and another writer collaborating with him named Fletcher Pratt called The Incomplete Enchanter Stories, where they attempted to do fantasy uh, with rigorous logic and mathematics. Mm. But that's, you can't really combine fantasy and science fiction, they're two different things. The, The closest you can come now is something like what they call science fantasy. Star Wars, for example, is not science fiction, it is science fantasy. It has all the trappings of science fiction but there is very little, if any, attention paid to science.
0: It's weird that Star Wars doesn't have, like, any, any, any wheels, and their computers are very uh, very sort of rudimentary.
1: Well, it's very Flash gordon which was the same way, which was George's original intention, of course, was to do this uh, uh, adventure in space full of daring do and, and the hero's journey and all that, and no attention really was paid to the science. Uh, everything just happened to support the story. So you have a main weapon, the lightsaber, which is a terribly impractical weapon, which I would never dare to try and use because you would probably cut off your own foot before you hurt your opponent. Uh, And you have little tiny starships, which can make multi-light year jumps in seconds. Don't look like they look like World War II fighters, which is the idea. It's changed somewhat subsequently, but it wasn't important in the beginning. Uh, I always wonder where the fuel tanks are on those little tiny, I mean, you know, if you were using, well, you see where I'm going with this, and it's, it's not to, to rag on Star Wars. This has all been talked about for decades, but there essentially is no science in Star Wars, except what I was able to sneak in here and there in, in the book and in the novelization of The Force Awakens, which is a whole other story. Right. And sometimes you put those things in, and sometimes they don't, but I tried. I know it's science fantasy. I know the science is not important, but the science is important to me. And it's important to those readers who still think of Star Wars as science fiction and not science fantasy. Science fantasy is after all an awkward term. But I've written fantasy too, of course, uh, very conversant with the differences. When people ask me, what is the difference? What do you think the differences between fantasy and science fiction? I always reply science fiction is the literature of the possible. Fantasy is the literature of the impossible. And I leave it at that. And if people want to go argue that, which they do, then I just, that's my answer. That's my reply. I'm always happy to address specific instances of both. I just, but I leave them alone. My last novel that was published, Madranga, is pure fantasy. There's no attempt to put any kind of science in it. I love them both. I love both genres.
0: That's what I get from from reading the book. Is it's such a you're so obviously a fan. You know, you're obviously you're a writer, you're a creator, but you're also a great fan of this uh, of these genres.
1: Well, that goes back to your question about how did I get started writing these things and why was I asked to write them? Uh, I I think I bring to the table when I do a novelization the combination of at least now an experienced professional and the fourteen year old boy who is sitting in the back of the theater with his friends loudly criticizing the crummy special effects on the screen. I'm still those two people. So if I run into something in a screenplay that I think is uh, such an egregious contradiction, I will try to fix it without hurting the plot or the characters or anything else. In the hopes that these little bits and pieces here and there will make the story a little more comprehensible from a scientific standpoint, from a plot character standpoint, sometimes Usually, in fact, the publishers leave it alone, especially if they have a lot of control over the final result. Sometimes the film people will get involved. Doesn't happen very ac- very often. Uh, to use fantasy for an example, which I rarely get queried about, when writing Clash of the Titans, since you mentioned it, there are some aspects of the Greek myths in there that aren't really true to the Greek myths. And I try to bring those together and explain those and rationalize those those as best I could in the book. And uh, Warner Books, the publisher, left it completely alone. They didn't touch anything I, I changed or altered for any reason, let alone those reasons. Sometimes people will get heavily involved. You read about the story of my writing Alien 3 and what I went through with that and why I didn't write Alien Resurrection as a result and why I ended up writing Alien Covenant later on.
0: How 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 was it? I mean, because with Alien Free, just for for our listeners, it was uh, you objected to the the killing off of Hicks and Newt specifically. you thought that wasn't, and you sort of kept them in suspended animation. I mean, I could tell that that's still that still really rankles with you. you. You 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 weren't happy with that situation at all.
1: Well, that's the most extreme example of interference in what I wrote uh, that I've ever had. The screenplay, the whole film had a lot of problems with production and particularly with the story and they kept changing things and nobody really knew what to do. And in defense of David Fincher, that was his first film I believe as a director. So there are a lot of reasons to excuse a lot of the thing, things that happened in Alien 3. But the main thing was at the beginning you have, um, in addition to Ripley surviving, you have Hicks and Newt surviving. There's actually a cut, Uh, they do a dissection of Newt and the whole thing is an obscenity. And uh, you, can, you can yell child exploitation if you want. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of things you can say about not just that scene. But it bothered me. There was no reason for Newt and Hicks to die. These are two of our favorite survivors. They survive, And then they just killed off at the beginning of the film for no particular reason. It doesn't enhance the plot or move the plot forward any. So what I had to do was try to not have them killed off in a way that would not contradict the plot of the film. And as you mentioned, what I did was I had their capsules damaged to the point to where they could not be revived, but they could stay alive because the equipment to revive them from damaged capsules didn't exist on this prison planet. So they're there, they're not dead, but they don't interfere with the plot of the film. Ripley's capsule was not damaged, so she gets revived And then she dies at the end too, which was wrong. Uh, There was so many things wrong with that film. Again, for various reasons. I went through in the novelization, tried to fix as many of them as I could. Got a letter back after I turned in my manuscript. Uh, The letter came from Walter Hill, one of the producers saying, "Uh, you can't do this. You need to follow the screenplay exactly as written. I had never received this kind of letter from anybody involved with any film before. And as the letter went on to say, we think it will make for a better book. And being a tactful diplomatic person, although I do always tell the truth, I did not write back and say, well, you know, I've done this for both for films by, from screenplays by George Lucas and James Cameron and Ray Harryhausen and John Carpenter. And I think I have some idea uh, of what I'm doing, but I did not do that. You can't do that with a novelization because it's a work for hire. If you don't want to adhere to the rules of the game, writing novelizations don't take the job if you take the job you have to follow the rules so I had to go back and change all kinds of things and take out all sorts of things that I thought improved the story without contradicting the film again not just the Newton Hicks episode and send it back in and then when they asked me when Warner asked me to do the adaptation of Alien Resurrection I turned it down Uh, subsequent to which I got a letter from the gal who did do it A.C. Crispin Very short letter saying, Alan, why didn't you warn me? (laughs) Uh, Many years passed. I was asked to do the novelization of Alien Covenant, uh, plus originally a sequel novel, uh, subsequently a prequel novel, both of which I did. My first question was, were the people who were involved with Alien 3 involved with Alien Resurrection? And the people at Fox told me, they said, no, none of them. They're a completely new group of people. And Ridley Scott's directing it. And I thought, well, there's two good reasons why I can justify doing this project. And I did. Subsequent to which, as you have read, the novelization of Alien Covenant went fine. There were discussions back and forth because studios get more involved with these things. Now, no real problems. But I was supposed to do a sequel. And I did a fairly elaborate outline of something I thought would be really good, expand on what happens in Alien Covenant, and serve as a nice sequel. But before I could get any further than the outline, they called me and said, no, we actually want a prequel to Alien Covenant. Hmm. So I had to set this outline aside. Maybe somebody will read it someday. Maybe I'll get to publish it someday and do a prequel. So I thought, all right, I can do a prequel just as easily as a sequel. And they said, well, there's, there's one, one restriction. So what's that? And they said, you can't use any aliens.
0: <laughs> we're back there again. We're back, we're back to the beginning.
1: You want me to write a prequel to an alien film, but I can't have any aliens in it. But yeah, that's right. So I'm kind of back at alien again where they wouldn't show me any pictures of the alien. Well, you know, you can, don't worry about that with this prequel because you can't use the alien anyway. So we're, as a writer I'm thinking, where can I go with this? And I went to the history of the company, Whalen yutani and did a lot of research, not a lot, did research into Japanese corporate culture. And of course, that's the Utani half
2: mm-hmm.
1: of Weyland Utani. And I had fun with it, but it was not an easy project because I can't just write a corporate a novel about corporate skullduggery. Somehow it has to tie into not just the alien universe, but alien covenant. I did the best job I thought I could. There was a lot of commentary online when the book came out. Like, this isn't an alien book. There's no aliens in it. And I'm just sitting there reading this stuff, going, I'm sorry, guys and gals. It was not my call. I did the best I could with what I was allowed to have. And um, I'm very proud of the ending, actually, of the prequel novel, Alien Origins, mm-hmm. Alien Covenant Origins, because I think it leaves um, much more room for the reader's interpretation of what happens next and subsequently to Alien Covenant, in fact, uh, than the film does. And they left that in. So, you win some, you lose some. You pick your battles as a writer and uh, you do what you can. I mean, in, in Prometheus, they sort
0: of got rid of the alien as well. I mean, the, 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 the first Ridley Scott sort of prequel was, you know, it, it, it had things that were kind of like aliens, but not exactly. And it, it, it sort of, met, you know, I, I think that's one of the weaknesses of, of Prometheus is it's just, you know, just do, a, do an alien movie.
1: Okay. My take is that what often happens to big name writers and big name directors in film is that they suddenly have accumulated a lot of power to where they basically can call the shots on their project. They tend to get a God complex. and it's like, how can we work the deity into this film? Uh, I have an enormous amount of respect for Ridley Scott as a director. And this is a subject that he, religion that he's obviously interested in. I mean he made a wonderful film about the crusades but every time you bring supreme being into a story whether it's prometheus or some kind of you know analog for a supreme being prometheus or, or star trek the motion picture anything godlike it it suddenly puts i think the viewer unless it's a direct film about a religion puts the viewer at a distance it's like well Nothing that happens in this really matters because God's behind it or some kind of a God is behind it. It's like you do a whole story and then at the end you find out it's the protagonist's dream. Right. It invalidates everything else that happens and it removes free will from your characters. You know, this, this, and this happens. Superman shows up at the end of the film. Well, nothing that happened before matters because now Superman's here and he's going to solve everything. And I think this happens with a number of films, and it's. it's I don't think it's a good story idea, a good story element, but nobody asks me, so I, I'm asking i asking you. <laughs> yes, I, I talk about it in interviews and on podcasts, and then then I can give my opinion.
0: What, what do you think of the state of science fiction fil- and fantasy filmmaking at the moment? Because there seems to be a lot. There seems to be a lot of stuff out there, but also, um, you know, the the comic book movies have to some degree bitten into that market
1: well comic book films are a separate sub a separate genre if you will and again much more like science fantasy than science fiction it depends on the character of course and now how iron man's suit actually enables him to fly there must be an awful lot of highly concentrated fuel in the heels of those boots Uh, that's science fantasy there's no way you can rationalize that Stanley tried with a lot of his characters, he tried to at least give them some hint of validity from a scientific standpoint. Uh, Peter Parker doesn't just spin spider webs, he got bitten by a radioactive spider. Okay, there's something there, there's at least an attempt. Right. Um, But still you get a lot of science fantasy. That's fine, I don't know how long that's gonna last. Nobody does, least of all the heads of studios, but they'll milk it for as long as they can because it's a business. It's always been a business. Right now, uh, we're in the midst of something of a boom. I mean, we had, you, you, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. You get great science fiction and fantasy films when you allow people who believe in the subject matter to make those films. So you get the Lord of the Rings from Peter Jackson. Can argue about the three Hobbit films, everybody will, but you have the Lord of the Rings. A landmark in fantasy filmmaking, any way you look at it. Now we have an adaptation of Foundation on yep. uh, Apple TV, if I remember correctly. We had a pretty decent adaptation on the Science Fiction channel, even though it was for television of Arthur Clarke's Childhood's End. Right. And of course, the first half of Dune is coming out. And these are, being, these are considered now, uh, at least Dune and, and uh, Lord of the Rings, as important films. They're not being dismissed as fantasy and science fiction. They're being judged finally, As two thousand and one was as a film, Uh, everybody's looking forward to Dune. People in Europe have seen it. I don't know if you've seen it.
0: Yeah, I've seen it.
1: Okay, I haven't seen anything overtly negative.
0: No, I I really liked it. I really, uh, without giving away any spoilers or anything, it's really really good. The only problem it has is is exactly what you said that it's the first half and you know the book doesn't have a a sort of a natural break point. But other than you know, if they if they did it like with the Golden Compass that they they did one film and then they they didn't continue with the trilogy, if they did that with Dune, then it would really feel like it's not a standalone movie. It, you it, it doesn't, yeah, it needs to be completed.
1: Well, everybody thinks so. And it all depends as these things do in the motion picture business on money, on the box office. I know. Last week, it was over a hundred million dollars and it hasn't even been released in the United States and China yet, which are the two biggest markets. Uh, Certainly the pre-reviews and pre-commentary have been wonderful. And uh, hopefully it will make enough money. I'm sure it will make money, but hopefully it'll make enough money to where Warner Brothers goes ahead and greenlights the second half of the book, essentially. I think that will happen. I think at this point, I'm, I'm gonna make a call here that there has been enough hype and enough money. I don't see any reason why the U.S. box office, you can never predict the Chinese box office, but why the U.S. box office and Chinese box wouldn't justify this.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: second film, if for no other reason than that it has brought an enormous amount of prestige and good vibes to Warner Brothers films. I mean, they haven't had anything like this. It's been all Disney and Marvel and Lucasfilm, and they've actually got something here that they can go ahead with, not just the second half of Dune, but Dune Messiah, got a you know, right on down the line as far as they wanna take it, plus spinoffs if they wanna do something in television. Uh, you, you see a B'nai Gesserit, if I'm pronouncing that right. I never did get that uh, for sure correctly. You know, there's lots of spin-off possibilities here, which I'm talking like a, you know, a studio person now, not a writer necessarily. Right. I, don't, I think we will get at least the second half and possibly follow up films as well. So, so you're, you're
0: optimistic about the science fiction, the, the, the current sort of state of affairs of science fiction then?
1: Yeah, there are also good low-budget films that have come out in the last 10, 20 years that show you don't need to make a Dune or a Lord of the Rings to make money doing real science fiction. Uh, Duncan, I think his first name, Duncan Bowie. uh,
0: Oh, yeah, Duncan Jones.
1: Duncan Jones, thank you. I'm sorry, Duncan. But a really (laughs) fine little low-budget film called Moon, which is real science fiction. And we have the film from South Africa. Just from 9
0: District nine.
1: Yep. Again, and prior to that, there was a marvelous film called Dark City. Terrific yes. film starring of all people, William Hurt, uh, Jennifer, William Bell, thank you. And Kiefer Sutherland, a marvelous, marvelous science fiction film done by the, the people who did The Matrix later on, or some of the people. Mm. So it you can do a low budget science fiction film, do it well and make money. And as the technology improves, continues to improve, it becomes easier and easier to do elaborate special effects on very little money. So I have, I'm really optimistic about that. Now that we've seen adaptations of Dune and Foundation, I'm hoping that the whole literature of science fiction, uh, which is open to development as film and television, will draw more and more interest from the established studios as well as large independence, because you can do it reasonably now. There was a little film, um, Mimsy, it's a good example, right. based on a short story by Lewis Padgett, which was actually Henry Cuttner and his wife C.L. Moore, called All Mimsy Were the Borgoves. Delightful little film, didn't follow the story exactly. You do have to make some accommodations for the fact that this is film and not prose. I thought it had a charming feel to it and very nice little special effects. Within the budget that they had, and people can look that up. See again, a fairly recent film on done on a low budget. So yes, I am optimistic. I am certainly optimistic.
0: What uh, novel from the sort of from that the pantheon of science fiction uh, would you would you love to see a movie of? Would you sort of like that hasn't yet been been treated?
1: Right. Well, there's so many out there. Uh, the short stories of Robert Sheckley, who I consider the greatest short story writer the field ever produced any one of his dozens and dozens of short stories that could be made in the films. Uh, ideally, there would be like uh, the Robert Sheckley anthology series where every one of his stories, and he did so many great stories. I mean, Watchbird from 1950 or 51 is essentially about uh, autonomous drones. It's from 1950, Sheckley really was ahead of the curve on a lot of things. One of his short stories, uh, novels, I think The Tenth Victim was made into a film Starring Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andres many, many years ago.
0: Oh, yeah, I've seen it quite, quite recently. It's a it's kind of crazy 60s. They run around. It's like a, they've got to murder people on television, and it's a reality game sort of thing.
1: That's a way ahead of its time story, ideal-wise. Uh, so Sheckley's story is certainly my favorite science fiction writer of all time, and it's just a personal choice, was a British writer named Derek Frank Russell. And not a lot of his stories would be suitable for adaptation, but there's one, and it'll probably never get made. The one I would like to see made is a story that I actually expanded into a novel at the request of Tom Doherty at Tor Books. It's called Design for Great Day, which is a far, far future story uh, with a really important moral and storyline about war. I don't think that'll ever happen, but I would love to see that get made. And it wouldn't be as expensive as some of these other ones. But what I'd like to see get made is another story Russell did. Uh, the short story version, Plus X, was the highest rated story ever to appear in astounding analog science fiction. And it is a, a humorous science fiction story. And it basically only has one human character in the entire story. Right. Everybody else is an alien. And it's a prison escape story. That gets kind of out of hand, and Mel Gibson, who has had his problems in Hollywood, uh, would be perfect for it. You need somebody a little off kilter to be the one human in this story. But well, those are personal choices.
0: Sure, sure, no, absolutely, no. But I'm, it's it's fascinating to to hear to you because you've got such a great uh, you know depth of knowledge when it comes to science fiction. I mean, I'm, I consider myself a big science fiction fan, but yeah, there's there's a whole breadth of stuff out there
1: to go into I've been reading longer than you but if people want to in addition there's so much stuff published now new stuff all the time people should go back and some of this is probably available for free online but if you go to used bookstores or you go to used book sites like abebooks.com for example there was a whole series of anthologies big thick weighty anthologies that came out after world war ii late 40s early 50s because none of these stories had ever appeared in hardcover form. Authors didn't have single author anthologies of their work published with very few exceptions like Arkham House or Fantasy Press, limited to press numbers. Uh, Some were edited by a fellow named Gruff Conklin, the big book of science fiction, uh, the book of science fiction, robot stories. And they gathered these stories, people with, as you say, knowledge of the field from the magazines, the best stories, And put them in these huge anthologies and you would have 40 or 50 short stories taken from all the magazines in one place so look for the Groff Conklin anthologies those of you who would like to see what science fiction was like when it was really getting started in the modern era Mm. and also stories edited by Judith Merrill Canadian best of the year anthologies and another series of stories um, uh, the year's best from fantasy and science fiction magazine So there's three sets of early books that you can, anybody who reads all of these, and we're probably talking a total of, for people who really like to read, maybe 30 books, 30 to 40 books, you'll get a complete overview of the beginnings of modern science fiction, and not just history. These are really good stories. A lot of Classic, classic stories that hold up very well.
0: Oh, brilliant. Well, that's, that, that, those are some great rec- recommendations as well, because uh, do, usually during this bo- podcast, uh, we ask for a recommended book, and, uh, and you've preempted me there. <laughs> you preempted me.
1: Preempted you with a bunch of books. But, uh, exactly. These early, these early anthologies had the pick of the field, because, of course, none of these stories had been anthologized previously. So the editors, Judith Merrill, Groff Conklin, and uh, Anthony Boucher at the start with uh, fantasy and science fiction had the pick of the field They could get only the best stories and eliminate a lot of the dross
0: yeah. from the
1: beginning. So these anthologies read, tend to read quite well.
0: So you've, you've, um, you, you said earlier that you're working on a novelization at the moment. Is that, is that
1: correct? Yes, it's a fantasy, but it's an interesting uh, approach. The normal procedure is uh, a film is in production. The studio, whoever owns the the book rights, sells the book rights to a publisher. The publisher then hires a writer to turn the screenplay into a book. In the case of this story, which is called Stuart, is a charming, funny fantasy story, contemporary fantasy story, uh, about a dog, essentially, and the dog's dog's owner. Very suitable for a young audience without having to take any words out of it. The uh, author of the screenplay and one of the authors, Samiridi, wanted a book first before the film actually goes into production. And I told him, I said, "Well, this is kind of backwards." And he says, I, "I really think it would work well as a book." So I'm novelizing the screenplay. So there's that. I have an original science fiction standalone coming out next year called *Prodigals*, which will come out from Word Fire Press which did an excellent job with my last novel, uh, Madringa, which is fantasy. And uh, I'm writing classical music. As well. Yeah, Well, it, I, at the start of the pandemic, I was stuck at home even a little more than a writer normally is. It's something I'd always wanted to do. Uh, but I have no formal musical education and I don't play an instrument, both of which kind of complicate things. However, there are excellent programs now that allow you to write music and the key thing is I use a, actually a free program called Muse Score, which actually allow you to put a note down on a stave and score it, say, for trumpet, and then click on it with your mouse and hear it as a trumpet right. or a violin or a flute or whatever you want. And I found that after some work trying to learn the program, it was also teaching me music composition. And so I've written four symphonies and a number of short pieces, and I'm just having a great old time doing it. I wrote a symphonic poem to accompany Madranga, accompany Madranga, which was something I'd never been able to do before. Excellent. And do
0: do you find that sort of cross-fertilization really sort of, it helps you uh, with the writing as well, maybe?
1: No, (laughs) (laughs) that's the short answer. Um, Unlike a lot of people who write prose or write music, I don't, the two of them don't blend seamlessly. I don't think of a musical theme that leads me into a story and I don't start a book that suddenly starts me thinking about uh, a theme for the orchestra. They are actually separate entities, which surprised me. I would have thought when we started writing the music that what you just said would be what would happen, but it's not, it seems to be separate in my mind. Not that I can't combine them as with the symphonic poem in the book but I didn't one didn't lead to the other directly for example if I ever sit down and write an opera for, for which I've thought about for example then you would have story and music obviously
0: right narrative would be involved right what what is the state of play in terms of novelizations at the moment in terms of I mean when I, I was a kid novelizations were our dvds they were our, our video cassettes and now we have video cassettes and DVDs. well not video cassettes anymore we have streaming and everything does that mean there there are less opportunities for novelizations or i mean i i'm very ignorant of the market so it's uh
1: no, you essentially answered the question right the, the first thing is to realize is um, while there was definitely a boom in novelizations pre-tape, certainly, and also pre-DVD to a certain extent, because there were no alternatives if you wanted more of a story. The only genre where it really took off was science fiction fantasy. You didn't see a lot of novelizations of mystery movies or Western movies or contemporary uh, people talking over the back fence in New Jersey movies. Fans of science fiction fantasy really want more of something they like. So there were a lot more of those. Certainly there are less now because people can pick up not just the DVD, uh, but a special edition DVD. So whereas you might've had, I'm trying to think of a good example. You might've had a novelization of say, um, Aliens previously to add to it. Now people can pick up the director's cut and see more. There will still be fans of science fiction fantasy who will want even more than that which is proven by the fact that these novelizations of earlier films, even though there are now DVDs of them and directors cut DVDs of them, still sell. The novelization of Star Wars, the novelizations of the alien films and others still sell. So there still is a market for that. There just isn't as big a market because people do have an alternative. The thing about science fiction and fantasy is fans who really like a film, like say the Chronicles of Riddick, for those right. who really like that film, will buy the extended DVD, the director's cut DVD, and the novelization, just to get as much as possible of that particular property as they can.
0: And that was the film that gave you your title for your memoir?
1: Yeah, to come full circle in a way, yes. yes. <laughs> People will have to read the book to find out where that title came from.
0: Exactly. Let's leave that. Let's leave that. You, you, that is only available if you read the book, and I'll put a link on uh, the show notes uh, to the book. I highly recommend it. It's a really great read and a real eye opener. And it's also really interesting from a sort of practical point of view, as a, as myself, a writer. A lot of people who listen to the podcast uh, are people who are interested in writing as well. So I think that that it, it's really instructive as well. Thank you so much, Alan, for your time. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute honor talking to you. I can't tell you how important those novelizations were for me, getting into, you know, getting into books, getting into literature, and getting into science fiction and fantasy.
1: You're most welcome. I'm happy if I have helped people, not just to get into the field, but uh, occasionally do get a letter from somebody who said, they picked up a novelization or one of my original books and it started them reading. And to me, that's the best award a writer can possibly get.
0: So that was my conversation with Alan Dean Foster. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. It was an absolute privilege and honor to, to meet one of my childhood heroes I guess it was absolutely brilliant and wonderful conversationalist someone who knows so much about so much about so much and really interesting to hear someone as well who has lived and experienced and is that sort of connection between some of those legendary figures his story that he told about Robert Bloch and H.P. Lovecraft was particularly interesting and inspiring I feel so even people who are listening to this and who are writers I feel this there were lots of gems in there I hope you enjoyed it anyway his recommended book was the collection of of um, science fiction uh, the science fiction anthologies which i hope you've all noted down all that remains for me to do is to thank ellie atkins for doing the music ali Harwood for the help of the artwork and until the next episode please take care